it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Situation in the Story podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moore, a queer writer and educator living in Denver. I'm here to bring you the story behind the story. When I read a book that intrigues me, no matter the genre, I want to know more. Who is this writer? What challenges and mundanities led them to create something so profound? More than craft and publishing stories, I'm here for the in-between. The ways our various identities and intersectionalities inform our stories and make us who we are. The ways we transform barriers, borders, and boundaries into art. Happy holidays to my faithful and new listeners. Super happy you're here. First things first, if you enjoy these conversations, please quickly leave a star rating on Apple Podcasts. really helps the show to grow. If you really want to help out, write a review, and I will send you some Situation in the Story podcast swag. Just send your mailing address over to thesituationinthestory at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support these conversations, please visit patreon.com slash situationandstory. And above all else, please spread the word. So you may have noticed after the first three bi-weekly episodes of season two, I went off the map a tad. Public school teaching during a pandemic and falling in love will do that to a girl. Transitions, seasonal, and otherwise have been a challenge for me my whole adult life, but I'm happy to be back, and I'm happy to say it's been over a year since the Situation in the Story podcast was born. For this episode, I sat down with Boston-area writer Meredith O'Brien, who has has authored four books and co-authored one, including Mr. Clark's Big Band, which won an independent publisher book award. I was a finalist for a Forward Review Indies Award. She teaches journalism at Northeastern University, where she also serves as a writing coach. We discuss her memoir, Uncomfortably Numb. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. The first question is, why do you write? Why do I write? <laughs> and this is going to sound trite, but I write because I have to. Like, I, like I, I, I have stories that if I don't write them, they bug me. Like, I will think about them and think about them and say, I have to write something about it, even if... For example, if I if I see something in the news and I feel really strongly about it, I might write an opinion piece. I might not get it published, but just writing it yeah. helps me get through it. And I just I, I need to be able to write through whatever it is that's in my head. So I, I've always written and probably because that's just the way I'm built. Yeah, I mean, I get that. I a lot of writers 
have that answer. I have to. What would I do otherwise kind of thing? <laughs> it's, well, it's the way I process, I think. I, like Some people process by talking through things, and, and sometimes I do, but I really need the the quiet time to to write it and the writing is kind of like a cleanse like a scream into the void and yeah. then I'll go back and look at it and be able to calmly go through the material but it's it's the way I I figure things out yeah. in my life yeah I I relate to that so your memoir uncomfortably numb was published this past March just right when covid really made its way into our world perfect timing yes. yeah <laughs> it tells the story of your ms diagnosis um and as an you're you're an investigative journalist right i used to be right now i'm not do, investigating right anything right now but i right. used to be yeah. okay yeah i feel like uh with that background you really tackle the complexity of your diagnosis pretty masterfully um yeah i was wondering how long it took you to write and how much like distance did you need from the diagnosis and everything else that happened that year well the beginning of the origins of the book are kind of weird um but uh i wasn't ever planning to write a memoir about this i was when all of this started i was working on another book a different book yeah um and I started feeling symptoms of MS while I was starting to write work on that other book project. Long and the short of it is I went to, I enrolled in an online MFA program for creative nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And it, I wound up doing that shortly after I was diagnosed with MS. And originally my um, thesis was going to be that book I'd been working on, right. which was about a, called Mr. Clark's Big Band. It was about a, a Massachusetts middle school band that was in mourning after one of its members passed. But then I got a publisher for that and I hadn't finished my degree yet. And I said, I can't submit something that's already going to be published as my thesis. I can't workshop it. I've got to come up with something new. And I was in the middle of trying to make some sort of sense of what I was experiencing. So I said, I'm going to write this. And I wrote the first draft in nine months and it got, it, it, it underwent many revisions after that, but yeah. It was the weirdest thing writing, like I was writing about what had happened in the past, but I started writing the, uh, this thesis in 20, the end of 2016. So anything that happened at the end of 2016 through 2017, I was writing it as it was happening. Yeah. So it was kind of very weird. I've never done that before. So I guess like towards the end, I think I remember you saying like, you know, I, I ditched the other book for the thesis. Did this, was this the book that became? Yes. Yeah. Cool. It's kind of a meta, like I was working yeah. on that book and then it became this book and it totally. was just very weird. Yeah. So, so some of the things you were writing were present tense. Did you feel like, I mean, how is your relationship with the material? Cause it's not, it's obviously not an easy experience to write about. And I'm, I mean, I have like 20 years distance from something I'm writing about right now and it's still traumatizing. Like how, how was yeah. that? It was, I, I think it was, it was slightly easier to write about during the period of time that the book covers. It's 20, the summer of 2012 through the spring of 2017. My mother passed away in 2014, the same year I was diagnosed. And she was 65 and diagnosed with a fast moving cancer. And it was six months from her diagnosis to her passing. And when I started writing the memoir, that was, I was glad I had a little distance from 
it wasn't a lot, but a little distance from her passing because it did help me. It did help me get inside of my emotions. What was I thinking and how did that factor into my overall perspective? Because if I had tried to write about my mom's passing immediately, it, it it wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to have any perspective whatsoever. Um, as far as writing about things that were happening to me, I tried to apply some of those investigative reporting skills that I had and try to step myself back away from this. Like I'm writing the story about this person named Meredith O'Brien and <laughs> I'm looking at, and so I made like I would as a reporter, I made requests. I wanted all my medical records. I wanted mm -hmm. to look at my MRI reports. I wanted to look at all of these things. I sat down, I downloaded my text messages from the period of time. I looked at all, got out all my emails and my photos and tried to look at the documentation from that period. And then I interviewed family, friends, and, and, and said, give me your perspective of what happened during this period. Some of the most informative uh, interviews I did were with my own kids mm -hmm. to find out, well, when I was sick and in, incapacitated, what, what happened to you? What were you even doing? I don't even know. Like when I, I was in the hospital for two days, honestly, in the moment, I didn't know what was going on with them and what they knew or didn't know. So sitting down and collecting all of that information from outside sources and looking at it, trying to put a little distance between me and me, the person, me, the character in the book was, was the only way I could really approach it. Yeah. I recently interviewed, um, Erica C. Barnett, who wrote a memoir about, uh, quitting drinking. And she's also got a background in reporting. So it sounds very similar. And, and I have a, a background in journalism too, so I can relate to the impulse to research things like you do. And, um, it made me laugh actually one point in the book before your diagnosis, I think it was an ER doctor that you, when you went in and you were like, uh, I, I most likely have MS and like, you're, you're talking to him like you're one of them. Right. And I, I had to laugh because I've gone into several doctor's offices with my own diagnoses prepared as well. That turned out to yeah. be right. Yeah, I'm sure they hate that. I'm sure they're like, did you right. get this from Dr. Google? I'm right. like, no, I got this from a several years experience and research. But yeah, yeah the and that when I had gone into the hospital, it was um, with what was later in retrospect declared a uh, an MS attack. Yeah. Um, but in the moment, the ER doctor was the only person who seemed like he believed that that was the case because I was also uh. I was reviewed by a regular neurologist, not somebody who specializes in, in MS. And he was just like, no, I think this is a urinary tract infection. I think that this is totally unrelated to the recent MRI you had that showed all these new lesions, this brain damage. And, uh, but an hour after leaving uh, the, the hospital, my neuro my MS neurologist confirmed, yeah, you have MS. And right. that's what's going on. Yeah. You touch on, early early on in the book about how doctors have a have a reputation for attributing women's symptoms to what we used to call hysteria how did it feel i mean i can imagine how it felt but how did it feel to have the doctors tell you you were imagining it and they they you know somatizing stress from from your life did you doubt yourself 
Oh, yeah. Like when I initially went in, my first symptoms were numbness on my left side, my left leg that actually the numbness climbed up my body. And then I finally went and I got an MRI, which found a what they called initially a mass at the bottom of your brain where your brain meets the brainstem. I mean, that's not good. So I just get like, okay. And so then I was recommended to see a neurologist. So I went and saw a neurologist and he did a physical exam. And I I made, I think my big mistake was bringing my partner and my husband with me because the neurologist talked to him and not to me. Mm -hmm. And I happened to mention that I, I struggle with anxiety, but I've got it under control. I, it, I'm, it's not something that's preventing me from going forward in life. And he, and I told him I did yoga and he basically said, well, this doesn't present like MS. This doesn't seem like MS. Just basically do more yoga, relax. If things change, call me back. And I had this feeling I left there. I just thought, I felt like it just, it just didn't feel right. And when I looked later, looked at the the notes, the medical notes from then, he it literally said in the medical notes that he believed what I was experiencing with the numbness was psychosomatic in nature. Yeah. And that just made me so mad. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, I mean, I felt it in the room. But when I when the symptoms came back two years later, I said, I'm not going to go to a general neurologist. I want to find somebody who knows what multiple sclerosis looks like and how mm. it isn't. It isn't one one set of uh, symptoms. It can be a variety of symptoms. Yeah. And the guy that I wound up seeing was very respectful, and he understood. He was he was. It felt much different to talk to him than it did to the first guy. Yeah, I'm glad that you were able to find someone yeah. like that. Um, it's difficult. I've I've been. I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, like when I was a late teen in my late teens so like i've struggled with that too because i do there there are psychosomatic things that i've been through or types of you know symptoms that i get that really are just related to anxiety but it's like you know when you know your body even if you have anxiety you know your body so right i know what it feels like when i'm nervous or worked up about something then my stomach i I know how what that feels like and the experience that i was having in the multiple sclerosis symptoms was completely different and it just and and the hard thing with uh an autoimmune disease or diseases that have symptoms that are not obvious they can't be quantified like i can't there's no machine that can say your your sensation on your arm is this percentage less than it should be or nobody right. can t- if i'm saying i am dizzy or i am nauseous there's no way for them to independently verify it and a lot of doctors like numbers and statistics and things right. they can measure right. and these can't be measured you have to rely on my, my veracity for you to continue and assess me right which would you know you would think they would trust the patient that they're talking to. You would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's hard. Um, Something else I noticed um, that I tend to associate with women in our society was early on in your diagnosis, your ongoing guilt and apologizing for inconveniencing your family. And, and um, can you talk a bit about how that felt, what that was like? I don't know that I've totally stopped that actually. Yeah, like I would struggle with that. Yeah. Right. It, it, it even happened just today. Like, even though I have, I feel bad, I feel good today. I, um, 
I went outside with my husband to walk the dogs and we walked like half the block and then it was getting warmer and I have heat sensitivity because of the multiple sclerosis damaged some part of my brain that regulates temperature. And I started feeling nauseous. I started feeling like I was going to get sick. And my husband said, you have to go back. I said, I'm sorry. I wanted to go on a walk with you. He said, go back home. So I walked (laughs) back home. And as soon as I'm cool, it goes away. But I am, I I constantly feel badly, like I'm ruining vacations or I am ruining things. And I know that I'm, that they're not angry with me. And I'm kind of projecting in a way, like I'm angry with myself, feel like I'm ruining everything. And I just want to go and do this and, and enjoy this, but I can't. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That would be hard. Now for, for people who haven't read the book, will you talk a little bit about you know, what MS is and how it manifests for you besides that, I mean, including that heat sensitivity and everything like sure. that. Sure. Um, I'm going to use an, an analogy that my uh, neurologist, the the one that I liked, gave me <laughs> that I think makes the, it, it, it makes the most sense to me. He said to imagine that you have a, um, a mouse, a computer mouse hooked up to your computer, and then you take that plastic cord like this one and you strip the plastic away. The it's still connected to the computer, but there's no protection on it. So then you take a glass of water and you dump it on the wire. Then the <laughs> signals between the mouse and the computer are going to go crazy. They're going to not mal. They're going to malfunction. It'll eventually dry out, but it it'll be crackly. It won't necessarily be reliable. So he said that was very much like what MS is. It's where your body and they still don't know why decides to attack your neurons in your brain and your spinal spinal cord and it strips away the protective lining of it and screws the screws around with the connections and the the messages sent back and forth so that's why it's so hard to say there's a typical ms patient because my symptoms depend on where in my brain and where in my spinal cord I have damage. Some people will get damage in their motor, in their in their mobility, in areas that regulate mobility and not be able to walk. You could lose your vision if your eyes, if your optical, uh, your areas of your that control your optical nerves get affected. My damage apparently is in areas that control heat, heat sensitivity, um, nausea. I have. I have trouble with stairs, which is very odd. I can be walking fine, but I stairs suddenly my legs turn to jelly. I have fatigue and migraines and fogginess. If I don't get sleep, then I then I I'm very foggy. I have spasms at night. I have to take medicine for. And so there are all these different. There n- none of them are unmanageable except when you know fatigue knocks me to the yeah. point where I can't read and I can't do anything but lie there. Um, and I'm trying not to be angry with myself, but the MS symptoms can run the gamut. And some, there are four different kinds and I have the more, the more mild form. And sometimes it progresses to get to be more severe. Sometimes it doesn't. And nobody can predict who is going to move on to more severe uh, conditions. So you pretty much live in with uncertainty, pretty much to a degree all the time. Right. I mean, everyone does, but I, I know I am very precarious. I know that things are precarious and I'm yeah. always trying not to be so alert say, to my and 
trying not to be in my head and thinking, oh, is this getting worse? Is this mm. progressing? Is that what? And, or just saying, oh, I'm just having a bad day. Or it like trying not to catastrophize. Right. I have to really try and fight against some instincts not to not to allow myself to imagine that I'm that this is happening or that is happening unless I actually know for a fact that my disease has progressed. Right. And you, I mean, when you found out, like it was scary and maybe felt like a death sentence or something, but it seems like by the end of the book, one of your big takeaways is it's not like, I'm going to be okay kind of thing. Right. I think it's a whole mindset that I still struggle with that. I can still do, I still do things. I still, I'm productive in the world. I do things. It's just done differently. And the way I have to do them is different. And I have to be okay with that and say, this is just how I operate now. And I do struggle with it, but I, I have everything. I have to limit what I do, how late I'm out and whatever I do physically. I just have to be mindful of the messages my body is sending me. If I'm feeling a little tired, I really should stop because if I don't and push myself too hard, the fatigue will last for days. So it just, it changes the way I move through the world now. Yeah. You realized you'd have to slow, slow way down and you did not like that. (laughs) I was so stubborn. I was so stubborn. My, my poor husband, he'd be like, why don't you sit down? I'd say, why don't you stop that? I'm like, just (laughs) stop telling me what to do. And he was just trying to be protective, but I was just so sensitive when he would, when, or I even would have family members at family gatherings and I'd say, we like Thanksgiving. Oh, I can do this. I can make this. I can put this here. And then they'd come over and gently say, let me clear the table. Let me do this. And it was really hard for me to say, okay, yeah. do it. go ahead, do it. And, yeah. But I'm, I'm learning. I'm getting better at it. Yeah. I mean, well, it's part of your identity, this ability to multitask and do, and, you know, and especially with the, with your career in journalism and things like that. And, you know, when it, when illnesses and diseases, especially chronic ones have a way of toying with our identity. Very Uh, much so. Yeah. Um, The part that was like the scariest for me in the book, I think was, was, I, I think we're similar, but where you started to think, am I, am I losing my cognitive abilities? And you go, Yeah. How, how is that? Oh, well, I had, I started in 2015. I had, I had been teaching, I've taught journalism at a number of, a number of locations. And then I had a job change right before my, um, my mother passed or right before my mother passed away. Um, and I didn't go back to teaching for a year. And then when I start, when I went back to teaching, I had these a big class and I had about 50 students. And I started to notice that I was having trouble getting through student papers or it, it, I would read a paper and then I get through the first page and be like, wait, what? I, 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 what did that, what did that say? So I go back and then I started to notice I was having some trouble with reading the newspapers. I love my newspapers. I read multiple copies, you know, on paper in the morning. <laughs> and I was having, I was struggling with, with focus. And I talked to my neurologist and he said, let's bring you to what's called a cognitive neurologist. And then they, and it's, it, I liken it going to a cognitive neurologist to assess my my attention span, my ability to find words, all those things, to being 
naked in a room where everybody's looking at you pointing at the, there's a bulge, there's a line, there's a stretch mark. And you're just kind of <laughs> trying not to panic yeah. while you're standing there. So I went and I did this battery of tests, including some of the tests that the president talks about, you know, oh. the person, man, woman. And, and, and I had to do that. I'm like, I took that test. <laughs> and, and I knew they were measuring all these different things. And so, you know, you're conscious that you're being assessed every right. moment that they're asking things. Luckily, the takeaway that I, I got the um, the analysis back a week later, they basically said that I was having some short term memory issues. And then they gave me these different tools for dealing with the short term memory, it, memory uh, issues and also said I needed to get sleep and I needed to, and if I didn't get a lot of sleep and quality sleep, then that would affect, uh, that would affect my, the, the, um, the pace at which I was able to absorb new information. Mm. So I needed to take care of that. So now I, I take notes all the time by hand and on my, on my, um, my smartphone. I have reminders on my smartphone. Mm. I try to remember all of these different things. And so that was, I, I was so worried because I'm a writer and a teacher and I live in my head and the concept that I might, that that would degrade was really scary. Terrifying. So at least I got an assessment of where I, where I was at the time. And there are tools that I've been using to try to cope with that. Yeah. That's scary. That's like my worst fear. <laughs> um, I, that, that piece during the test about, Oh, or the—I don't know what you would call her. The, the the doctor or the tech was like, you know, name every every word that starts with F, <laughs> and you're like, oh. <laughs> my, I, yeah, it was it was I it was terrible because I had this internal monologue that the um the woman who was administering the test, you're supposed to say as many words as you can that start with the letter F, and then they time you. It's I don't know if it was a minute or thirty seconds, and. I started, think, but the way she phrased it was name every word that starts with F. And I'm thinking, you, I don't know every word that starts with F. I don't know most words that start with F. And, and I'm wasting time in my head thinking about the premise of the question, but that wasn't exactly the question. So right. then I realized, oh my God, I'm learning out of time. I have yeah. to start giving her words. And then the more you try to find the words, the more they slip away. Yeah. And it was just, it was a, that was a bad moment. Yeah. <laughs> I was not happy. Oh man. Oh, so, so, um, a, something I noticed in the book also was, you know, with your whole being a news junkie and the newspapers and everything you were saying, it started to feel like he, it was hard to keep up with the intersection of news and politics around the 2016 election, especially. I'm really curious since things have worsened so much since then how do you process everything that's going on in the world of 2020 oh not well particularly well um my my ki my kids who are now all three of them are in college now but one of them is now having to take classes here so he is he sadly has to listen to me all the time <laughs> and he's just like I don't want to talk with you about this. Like, 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 like my, my daughter said no more talking about Donald Trump in the house. So I said, okay, even though I like to talk about the news of the day and my other <laughs> son, her twin brother, he did the same. And it's just, I, I am trying to 
pace myself. I've got certain people with whom I'll exchange texts and be totally open about, but I'm trying not to turn on every single press conference, every right. single thing. Cause there, there is so much news that I can't even believe. I love news, but I had to turn off alerts on my phone because they were making me crazy. Yeah. And I have to intentionally not look at news certain times because it's, it's wildly intense and it's also literally life and death with people like whether it's wildfires on the West coast, if you live there or people getting killed in street, the streets or people getting a deadly coronavirus. And so I, I was just talking to my students just this past week. It was our first week of classes and I told them and they're all their world is all uncertain right now. And I said, I understand that reading this much news and consuming it is stressful. Mm. Um, we have to pace ourselves and, and I'm tr- and I'm trying to get them just to focus on issues of journalism. But it's it's hard for everyone. I, I don't know anybody right now who is not kind of have has this low grade hum of anxiety going through every day. Like everybody seems yeah. to be on edge. I remember being in in school for journalism in like 2000 around the time where obama was first uh elected and it was Mm -hmm. stressful enough with you know 9-11 and everything that came after that but i can't imagine being a journalism student right now i can't imagine that no, I have to, and it's funny because I have a number of international students also, and all last semester they were asking me all about what's this impeachment? What does this mean? Is this regular? Is this regular behavior for Congress? I'm just like, no, this is, it's at least <laughs> in my lifetime, this seems to be an aberration, but right. it is, it is a hard time for journalism students to understand the value of truth when truth is being devalued mm. and almost like as an afterthought mm. and trying to, to give them the tools to be able to root out memes that are full of propaganda and misleading information on, on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that I'm, I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm always confronting. We have a unit on media literacy, but it's, it it's really, I think challenging for young people to try to understand what journalism is right now when it feels like the world is literally on fire. Yeah. I recently interviewed um, a man named Satish Prabhasi. He's like in his eighties and he's been, he's worked with the UN for decades. Basically he's seen, he's seen everything from Nixon, Vietnam war, all kinds, like he spans a couple generations. So he's seen all of this different political upheaval ups and downs. And he was talking about how the nature of journalism has changed. Like when everything that happened with Nixon, that was two journalists that, you know, figured that out. And Woodward now, you know, had the information on Trump and held it, held onto it for, you know, whatever, whatever reason, (laughs) I know. It's kind of serendipitous that it's like full circle. Like I loved this. Like I looked at Woodward and Bernstein in the movie, All the President's Men as kind of, oh, hero journalists. And yeah. now he's back. Like it's like it's, it's, it's he's back in this in a big way, yeah. having a huge impact on the presidential election. Right. Very unusual. Yeah. 
Um, I miss, I miss journalism. <laughs> I, I miss when truth, yeah, when it was like, you could be a hero for, you know, uncovering the truth. And now it's like, what, where is the truth? What is the truth? Ugh. Right. It, it, it's, it's stunning that we all can't agree on certain basic facts yeah, right yeah. now. Like it's, 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 it's kind of like, you don't know what to do with that. Like as a journalist, you're kind of, well, this is what I found and here's what I found. And then you can decide if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but this is what I found. But now people are saying you didn't find that. Right. It, Me. It's yes, like I did. the ultimate gaslighting. Like my mother, my mother, bless her soul. We're not speaking because she, you know, she fell prey completely to this QAnon thing. Oh no, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. But it's like, you're literally trying to delegitimize my whole career and way of seeing the world. You really think, you know, I went to school all these years and learned so much and none of it matters. Nothing's real. Nothing's true. We can't know what's true. It's enraging. <laughs> I know. I deal with my, my dad puts things on Facebook and I'm like, no, this is the source. The source is, does is trafficking and conspiracy and rumor and nonsense. Here's the real information and, and putting it out there because to me, it's important that my nephews and my kids and yeah. other people who follow him see that I'm not just, I used to just let it go. But now in this era, yeah. I'll politely say, I'm sorry, this really isn't, Correct. Here's right. here are some links to factcheck.org or Snopes or other places where you can get the real information. So I've tried having conversations about sharing news, which is interesting because my dad is the one who turned me on to news in the first place. Right. He's the one who had who who encouraged me to read newspapers and to they always had my parents always had we were an NBC family. We had yeah. Today's show on the nightly news and meet the press and and now we're kind of in opposite worlds yeah. uh, when it comes to news and information. Yeah. Oh, ugh. it's it's a lot to handle. Um. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got to the point where it was just I couldn't let things slide anymore. I probably got a little too aggressive with my family members, but it's too much. No, there reaches a point where, where I'm, I'm a, believe it or not, I, I tend to just be polite and let people like say things and I don't, but I said, why? And I said to my husband one day, I'm like, why am I just sitting here and letting this stuff be said? <laughs> I, I, I can politely respond and push back. Um, I really, and now I really think it's important, especially for the other younger generations who are sitting around watching this. I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go, you know, it's not like you're going to go take down grandpa, but mm -hmm. you're going to go and you're going to say, well, I'm, so, you know, that's not actually right. And you can, there's a way to do it in a civil fashion, but right. we're not in a civil moment in America right now. No, we're like in a civil war. Yeah. It feels like that. Sometimes. Anyway, uh, <laughs> speaking of revealing the truth, will you talk a little bit about and I know there's there's nuance here and there's different reasons for different areas of life, but why you kind of hit, kept your diagnosis quiet for so long? Yeah, I, I didn't write about it publicly for, for a long period of time until I got a publisher for my memoir. And I didn't really, I told my close friends, but I didn't 
tell everybody. And I, I was really afraid that like I didn't tell people at work until January of this year because I was afraid that people would say, oh, she's going down the tube. She's losing it. She's not going to, she's just like, most people don't understand what MS is and they think immediately that I'm going to die immediately. (laughs) And my dad, it took a while to, to talk to him. And and it it was probably six months before he stopped answering the phone. Every time I called going, how are you? Are you all right? I'm fine. I'm okay. So there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it is. So people get, and not, this is not, downplaying cancer. My mother died of cancer. My mother-in-law died of cancer. But people have a better understanding of what that is and how it works and how you treat it. And usually people are able to treat it. And if they're lucky enough, can go into remission. Um, This is something that doesn't go away. It's always there and you don't get better. You just kind of live with it and hope it doesn't get worse. And most people have a very imperfect understanding. So I was concerned about that. And then finally I said, you know, I just want to, I felt like I needed to explain myself. I felt like I needed to also educate people. Like just yeah. say, you know how you you see me walking around? Well, actually this is what's happening and right. this is what's going on. And I think it was really embarrassing. Uh, and I didn't say anything in the moment. I went to an open house at my kid's high school and it was in a September a September evening and it was hot and humid yeah. and that makes me sick. And then you had very, parents had very limited time between classes and I had to go upstairs and I was, I have trouble with stairs and I was going up the stairs really slowly and I was kind of pulling myself up and I know I was, was uh, backing up everybody behind me. And then another parent who I didn't know was coming down the stairs and he kind of mockingly said, going slowly up the stairs and I and and people laughed and I know he was just trying to be funny and but I had to leave that whole parent open open house night early because I was getting sick and because I couldn't make it up and down the up and down the stairs and in the heat and humidity and I was just embarrassed and when I mentioned that to some friends, they said, well, did you tell some, tell that guy off? I said, well, we were in a hall. We were in the staircase. There are all these people. I was having trouble breathing. I said, I didn't say anything. I said, yeah. but maybe I should be more open about what I'm dealing with. So I explained to parents gradually, like when I was at a, a side, the sidelines of my kids lacrosse game and they'd say, oh, we haven't seen you. And I'd say, well, it's been hot and I can't come outside and when it's hot because I have MS. Let me tell you about it. And it seemed to be okay. Or people would just immediately go, Oh my God, I'm sorry. Like, they're like, Oh my God, I wish I never asked. Yeah. But they got the information anyway. So, yeah, it was definitely enlightening for me. And I, I, I can see why people don't have an understanding of it because it's has such a wide range of, you know, ways that it presents. I struggled for quite a few years with uh, illness, anxiety, disorder so like hypochondria and uh not anymore but there were so many instances where i would research symptoms i was having and it would all come back to ms somehow for me wow um so i thought any actually honestly even reading some of this and thinking about it i still wonder like uh have you ever had an mri i have not 
it's not fun. No, I, know, not I, I didn't seem fun in your book. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's it's an elusive. It, it's very hard to diagnose, and yeah. it, and the and the MRI seems to be the at least the gold standard now. They used to also do the MRI with a lumbar puncture, oh. but my neurologist said he he kind of shies away from that now. But well, it's hard. They used to. You did um you. Yeah, you yeah. went through that, didn't you? The lumbar, the lumbar puncture was a disaster <laughs> and yielded no information. But yeah. um yeah. Yikes. Um yeah, I don't know. I for a long for several years I would get and it was always in the heat too, which is so interesting that you say that. Um ocular migraines. Oh no headache, but all the visual stuff where I would have to lay down and get cool before it would stop and I haven't had I haven't had one in a long time like a couple of years which feels like oh, a long time good to me. Well, I'm glad I that because they're they're not they're scary it's terrifying and yeah and like and then I, I have anxiety on top of it so that starts happening and then I start to panic and it's just like it's a loop it's on a loop exactly yeah. <laughs> but um so how do you feel about it now? It's been how many years since six years? Uh, six years. Yep. Yeah. Um, do you, do you still feel like I'm okay? I'm going to be okay. Like you're, you're more used to living with it or. I'm, I am more used to living with it. I'm much more open about it now. And I have been since, well, the book is out and right. there's like <laughs> articles and I'm yeah. putting on, on social media and openly talking about it with my employ employers. So that's, that part is new, but it just, I feel more comfortable living with the uncertainty and mm -hmm. that's, that's the hardest thing. And is that is just knowing that I have to proceed with the uncertainty and I'm less, I'm getting less averse to accepting help or like there are times, for example, when I I have now a um a disabled parking placard but I only use it when I need it and that mm. would be in heat situations or like if it's really hot and I I would get sick if I had to walk a, a long way from whatever wherever where I had to park to the building that's yeah. air conditioned I use it but I'm still I always worry that somebody's going to look at me and say you're not sick what's wrong with you why are you doing this and and having to deal with that but I know it's there as a tool and mm -hmm. it's just a tool to help me do what I need to do. I've somehow, I sometimes use it on campus when I teach and I know I'm going to be on my feet for a long time. If mm -hmm. it's going to be hot, if I don't want to waste my physical energy on getting back and forth, crossing campus and going up and downstairs, I want to save my energy for the teaching. So I have to really think about my energy in terms of a, it's a very limited resource and I, where am I going to spend it? And so I use the, I'm more comfortable using the tools that will help me. Like if I need a medication or if I need the placard, if I need help from somebody making a meal, I'm, I have now started to say, would you mind, would yeah. you mind helping? And that's better than I was yeah, at the beginning. That's actually a beautiful thing. I can really, I, I don't, like asking for help. <laughs> um, so I imagine, yeah, that, that, that part's difficult. Um, are you take, are you, how does your MS interact with, you know, this whole pandemic? Are you like, you're still taking immunosuppressing 
Yeah, I am. I'm still taking the medication. Um, I had con- consulted with my neurologist and he said, keep taking what you're taking. There are some what they call disease modifying therapies for MS that are much more risky in a COVID environment. And I'm not on one of those. Um, I'm just super cautious about illness. I'm now teaching my, my university that I teach at has in t- in-person teaching and right. I initially thought maybe I can do it. And then I found out what the, I found out what was involved in it. And I realized that was not going to work. Like it wasn't going to work for a number of reasons. And I consulted with my neurologist and he wrote me a note saying he didn't think it was good for my health to go into the city and deal and do all this and, and be in, in, inside, in rooms without for a long period of time. And so I said, and I also talked to my department and I said, I can give you much better content and dynamic inner exchange with my students if I don't have to worry about the COVID part. And so they gave me, and they, they said, you, you can teach remotely, but still I feel more rec- reclusive because I have MS and I'm super worried about getting it. And I think there are more, there, there are families, even here in Massachusetts, there are people who kind of are blase about, about wearing masks or always being masked up. Like we went to Cape Cod recently and there were just people on, people were uh, socially distanced walking around the beach, but no, very few masks. And, and, uh, And it just, I think it makes me more cautious because I'm, I feel like I'm a sitting duck for that kind of a thing. Yeah. That's going to be tough. How was it having your book come out in March? I bet that that was disappointing. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the authors I speak with, you know, have had the same experience, like the shit hit the fan right when their book came out. And yeah, I mean, it feels selfish to say, oh, my poor book when people are dying and they're in lockdown and losing their jobs. But it was awful because my publisher and I had planned to release the book at the beginning of March, which is Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month. And a lot of media pay attention and write stories about multiple sclerosis so that we're like, oh, that's going to be perfect. And I plan this out. And then everything just collapsed. And it wasn't just my book, but there was no MS Awareness Month. There was COVID and COVID all the time. And I actually linked up with some other authors online and we created groups to try to help one another. I belonged, I joined a group called Lockdown Literature, which mm-hmm. is about 90, 90 uh, writers and all our books came out during this period. And mm-hmm. like, how can we help each other? And, and it's, it's, it's really hard because I understand the news choices that writing about a book versus what's actually happening right now. There's no comparison. Like right. there's, there's so much news happening. So there's not a lot of space for discussion of a memoir or an MS memoir. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's, it's just, it's a struggle to try to get it on the radar of anybody, but, um, but I'm healthy ish and I'm not, <laughs> and we have a job. So I have a job. So I'm, I, I feel badly even complaining about it, but well, it's a reality. Yeah. I mean, it's your, it's your work and it's more, I mean, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> we More than one thing can suck, right? Yes. <laughs> um, Sadly. Yes. 
I don't know. I loved it. I could tell. Oh, thank I you. could tell you're a journalist, but I see this book as a memoir and as a work of art. How was it? How was it? How was it different to kind of write a memoir, especially when you were like not planning to at all? It was so much more personal than mm. anything I've ever written. I mean, I wrote the first book I wrote back in 2007 was a compilation of humor parenting columns that I wrote about raising. I have twins and a younger son who is little less than three years younger than them. And that was all self self-deprecating humor, right. like just kind of crazy, like making fun of my neurosis about babies and this oh. and dealing with that. And But this was much more internal and raw. And I think it was really hard for me to process and write about my my mother's passing. I, I was mourning two different things in this book. I was mourning my mother and my own health at the same time, yeah. which both changed the way the trajectory of my life. And to try to reflect on my mom, um, my mom and I had a difficult relationship. Mm -hmm. um, we never connected really. And she had a lot of anger at me for a number of things. And we never really reconciled. When she got really sick, I just kind of pretended none of that existed and was just there for her. Yeah. But it was it was it was just really hard. And I, I and I wasn't able to speak at her funeral because I every time I sat down to write something, it it came off as self like I was attacking myself for not being the daughter my mother right. always wanted. I thought, Nobody wants to hear that. I don't want to <laughs> say that. I was like, I'm I, I just can't. I just can't do this right now. And I my memoir is kind of like part of a eulogy like I admired her loved her and cared yeah. about her but it was complicated it and was, yeah and that was really I've never written that kind that in that way before and then also having to write about my internal fears about my own health or my own cognition yeah. that's scary and very revealing and I just hoped I, I, I'm, you're writing it saying, is this too much or too little? Like, am I am not analyzing enough or not enough? And so I just, I tried to write the book in a kind of a, a reflective tone, but very approachable, like yeah. not, I don't know if I'm expressing it I think, well enough here, but yeah. Well, and then there was, there was more, you lost your job. Your father's health was yep. deterior, deteriorating at the same time. But I always felt like, and this could be how it comes through in the memoir only, but I wonder if, to me, at the time, it seemed like you still had the ability to see the big picture and not panic and, like, lose all hope. And I don't know how I would have done that, so I'm curious how, how the hell did you do that? I mean... Well, initially going back to when I went to the, like the two years before I got my diagnosis, I had done some research into MS and I knew it wasn't fatal at the time, but I kind of, um, by the time I actually got the diagnosis, this is going to sound really weird and backwards, but it was a relief because I finally was like, see, I am not imagining this. Yeah. It is in my, in my head, but literally and figured like fig literally it's in my head. And, and so I felt validated. Yeah. I mean, it, it made me feel like I'm not imagining it. So once I actually had the information, which I hate. The worst thing that destabilizes me is not having the information. Mm -hmm. I want the information. Once I have it, I can make a plan. I can try to figure things out. And 
I didn't go down a spiral of negativity about that because I, I had some sense of that the disease is not going to kill me. I was more worried about what kind of symptoms would I get? And then when I realized there's no way of predicting, right. I, I said, I can't live like that. I can't live in fear all the time. I, I have to change my, my viewpoint of what my life is going to be. Cause I had this vision of what it was going to be and right. it wasn't like it is now, right. but it's, it's okay now I'm all right with it, but I, it's, it takes a transition. Anybody who suddenly gets a diagnosis of anything, or it, you could even compare it to you're suddenly lost your job that you have been, you've been, that pays for your house, that pays for everything. Then who are you and what are you? And I think right now, globally, we're all kind of dealing with this upending of our lives by something that we didn't cause, we didn't do. It's just happened. Mm -hmm. And we all have to change the way we see things. And it, we don't like, we don't have to like it. We don't have to be happy about it, but we have to move on. And you can't just live in that anger all the time. Yeah. Well, God bless you. I mean, <laughs> that's, Yeah. I, 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 I completely relate to your sense of relief getting the diagnosis. I think you even qualified it in your writing, like that it would sound weird, but it felt like a relief. And I, I was like, yeah, like you can give the middle finger to those doctors now that told you. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, I, I had fantasies of, of, of printing it out and putting it under an office door being like, see, yeah. he's probably like, who the hell are you? Like, <laughs> I'm not remembering it, but it, it was very satisfying in the moment yeah. to know that it was real. Yeah. It makes me angry to think that doctors can be so not thorough and there's no consequences when there can be really big consequences for the patient. So yeah. Um, what else do you, I, I don't know that I, I think I don't have any more questions, but I was wondering if you would want to read a little bit. Sure. What, any, any particular passage? <laughs> I don't have anything picked. I assumed that. All right. Oh, I did want to note too, actually, you do slip in that, that self-deprecating humor from time to time, which I love actually. <laughs> well, I, 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 I have a dark sense of humor and like yeah. in my house, we kind of joke, we joke about MS because, and it's, that sounds kind of twisted, but like there'll be times when say the, this summer when all of our, my whole family was home and I wouldn't want to do something and I'd be like, Oh, but I have MS. And they'd be like, you pull up the MS card. You can't do that. So we joke about it, but like, I try to, to be darkly humorous. Like I, I actually pulled up this section. It's a short section. Like one of, in the aftermath of getting the diagnosis and having my life like turned upside down, my mother, as you said, my mother passing, I, I, unexpectedly didn't have a teaching contract renewed. I needed something positive. I wanted Is it something, <laughs> yeah, something exciting and, and lovable. And then I just became fixated on this idea of a puppy. And we already had a dog, a five-year-old dog named Max, who was kind of grumpy, but um, I became fixated and trying, I kind of emotionally coerced my family into getting this dog. And then I, um, <laughs> I impulsively adopted this dog and we named him Teddy after it, this was a, a family uh, dis 
decision. Teddy Wilson, because one of the kids wanted Wilson. One of the kids wanted Teddy after <laughs> Teddy Bruschi and the Patriots. Yeah. And um, I was going to read to you a little section about how adopting Teddy might not have been the greatest <laughs> thing in the moment. Like I forgot all about potty training and sleepless. And, and, and we adopted him in January of 2015 <laughs> during one of the biggest snowiest winters ever. But so that's the background for explaining um, little Teddy here, right. who's now like 12 pounds and all, all bark. Yeah. Okay. My veterinarian tells me Teddy is most definitely a Jack Russell Terrier a breed the American Kennel Club describes as alert, lively, inquisitive, full of high energy, which is polite code for hyperkinetic lunatic. The people at the shelter have no idea, we got him from a shelter, no idea what they were talking about when they called him a mini schnauzer mix. Maybe he has a bit of schnauzer, the vet says, but he's mostly Jack Russell. Back when we were looking for Max, Scott, which who's my husband, researched dog breeds trying to find what he thought was just the right one for us. Hyper Jack Russell Terriers were on his no freaking way list. I opt not to tell him right away about what the vet says uh, about Teddy's breed, biding my time until the pint-sized furball insinuates himself into my family members' hearts before breaking the news. I did. I didn't tell him for a while because once I did, I knew he'd be like, that's not right. We should return him. But we didn't. Um, Teddy's high-maintenance temperament becomes evident quickly enough when I take him to puppy training classes and the mild-mannered, heavily-tattooed and pierced dog trainer is stumped about what I can do to get him to stop with his incessant, ear-piercing barking and his leash-yanking. When I attempt to walk Teddy and Max together around the neighborhood, Teddy res resists the leash and pulls so far ahead that his collar gags him. He makes a ghastly choking sound that elicits strange looks from passersby as though I'm abusing my dog, strangling him, or else he has a horrible case of canine TB, which I'm now spreading all around the neighborhood. <laughs> he also has the tendency of crossing the sidewalk, zigzagging back and forth, back and forth. Max, the amiable, ambles along, totally low-key, totally, yeah, man, whatevs, while Teddy is caffeine on legs, attempting to speed walk while getting his leash tangled up with Max's every two minutes. The gleaming distraction I was seeking turns out to be not so much gleaming, but definitely a distraction. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, he was... <laughs> He was a ton of work, and I realized that I think the very first night we had him, and he started to whine, and I realized, oh, it's it's dark out, it's cold, I have to carry him outside. I'm like, oh my god, and I need to get all this sleep. And then my husband's sitting back on, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. The image of you out in the snow in the dark with his boots on and everything is so funny. <laughs> Yeah, my just my husband's oversized boots and just sitting out there looking at the cold going, what have I done? What, what is, this is so stupid. Oops. And I'm wondering, like, I know a lot of people during the COVID outbreak adopted yeah. dogs. Yeah. I, I mean, I love dogs, but I'm wondering if any of those, got, anyone who did that is going to be surveying things going, what have I done? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, well, thank you so much. I'm glad we finally did this. We were supposed to talk back in the spring and all all hell broke loose so i'm glad we, we got... have to learn to roll with this yeah, yeah. <laughs> um anything else you want to share about the book or the process or 
the book itself, I, I, some people are like, ooh, that's going to be dark and a downer. And actually, spoiler alert, it is not. It ends on a happy note. I think so. Um, and it ends on an uplifting note because the book, and this isn't going to ruin it for anybody, but the book I was starting to work on at the very beginning when I first got my MS symptoms is finally published at the end of this book. So it's very meta. But yeah. um, and, uh, and the ending of the book is at the launch party for that particular book. Yeah. And, and I was so worried that it was the first public event, the first public speaking event where I was going to be standing there. And I had these fears that MS was going to take it away from me, mm. that that I was going to faint or I was going to get sick or it's going to be too hot. And and none of that happened. Mm. And I felt this immense support and warmth and community. And when I thought about that, I said, you know, that's what's gotten me up to this point. That's what's gotten me through. Mm. And it and I need to appreciate that and look at that. And I think that with, with that support system in place, I, I can see thing positive things in the future. So it is, I see it as a parable for how do you handle your life turning upside down and work your way through it. Me too. Uh, the, the ending was beautiful. It was like a Thanks. Hollywood ending kind of. <laughs> so surprisingly it was not so much Hollywood before, but yeah, the ending <laughs> right. was nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was well, great. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much for listening. You can purchase Meredith's memoir, Uncomfortably Numb, at Barnes & Noble and Amazon. If you'd like to financially support this public school teacher, yours truly, as I labor and love to bring you these stories, please head over to patreon.com slash situation and story. Until next time, make sure you read something new.